Well, I want to invite you to stand. Uh, stand for the reading of Scripture as we start our new series today. Uh, as we stand, we do this to respect and honor the Scriptures, to say that they have an authority in our life and that we value them with the posture of our bodies. Uh, I'm going to be doing two readings to start us off today as we begin a new series, a new journey. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more, but I want to start with two readings. Um, they're kind of middle-sized each, and if you've got your Bible and want to follow along, feel free to. Uh, if you've got Bible Gateway on your phone and you want to uh, have a quick look now and tap it in, go, go for it. Um, but I'm going to be reading from the Message Translation just for these two readings today. Just reason being, um, some of the texts that we are using today if you've been in church a long time, it might feel pretty familiar. And as I often do when I'm preparing uh, to preach, you know, you sit with a couple of different translations of the scriptures. And as I sat this week with the message paraphrase of these, of these scriptures, there's just some beautiful little reflections and insights sitting in there in the, in the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrased it, that I think is just good for us today to get our imaginations going if this is familiar. And if it's not familiar, if this is the first time you're hearing some of these readings, Uh, I think that it's going to be so accessible for you today to grasp and understand. So, God, open our hearts that we may receive from you your word. Uh, John 15. Jesus says this, I am the real vine and my father is the farmer. He cuts off every branch of me that doesn't bear grapes and every branch that is grape bearing he prunes back so that it will bear even more. You are already pruned back by the message that I have spoken. Live in me. Make your home in me just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. I am the vine and you are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is dead wood. They're gathered up. They're thrown on the bonfire. But if you make yourselves at home with me and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. This is how my father shows who he is when you produce grapes, when you mature as my disciples. Now I've loved you the way my father has loved me. Make yourselves at home in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain intimately at home in my love. That's what I've done. I've kept my father's commands and I've made myself at home in his love. I've told you these things for a purpose, that my joy might be your joy and your joy wholly mature. And this is my command. Love one another the way that I loved you. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends. You are my friends when you do the things that I command. I'm no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master is thinking and planning. No, I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything that I've heard from the Father. You didn't choose me, remember. I chose you and put you in the world to bear fruit. Fruit that won't spoil. As fruit bearers, whatever you ask the Father in relation to me, he gives you. But remember the root command, love one another. Second reading is from Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, starting from verse 19. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. 
frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or to be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, and I could go on. This isn't the first time that I've warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way? Oh, he brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, and able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything that's connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessity is killed off for good. It's crucified. And since this is the kind of life we've chosen, this life of the Spirit, then let us make sure that we do not just hold to it as an idea in our heads, or a sentiment in our hearts. This is the word of God for us today. Grab a seat. These two readings, John 15 and Galatians 5, like I said at the start, some of you might be really familiar with some of those passages. Hopefully in the message there, there's a little bit of a freshening up of some of the ideas. These are two powerful scriptures. And they're the backbone for what I want to start us off on today as we begin our new series. Now, when I was a kid, I was not allowed to watch The Simpsons. A bit of a knowing laugh there from some of you, maybe. Apparently, um, upon watching Bart Simpson and his display of attitude, I would then similarly act up and display the same behavior. And so, in the days of TV when it was controllable, back before TV streaming and on demand, when shows were only on at a certain time and a certain channel, and if you missed it, you missed it, back in those days, my parents put a rule in place. I was not allowed to watch The Simpsons, and that just meant simply, I didn't see it. My parents made this rule, and it was in place to create a certain kind of outcome. No watching the show because we don't want you to become like that. This played out into a bunch of things, actually, as a kid. There was even more TV shows that I wasn't allowed to watch. There was books I wasn't allowed to read. I was one of those Christian kids that wasn't allowed to read Harry Potter, that is for sure. There was friend groups that I wasn't allowed to spend time in. In fact, when I started to skateboard seriously as a 14, 15-year-old and I started to play in punk bands, this really caused a lot of friction for my parents. But back when I was a kid, they were able to turn the tap on and off pretty clearly. Their house, their rules, the boundaries were set. All this to say, if I was starting to track in a certain direction of behavior, my parents had a lot of control of being able to rein it in and get things back on track. The other day, I heard of a parent whose six-year-old child 
was suffering an anxiety attack on the morning of going to school at the end of last school term. The reason for their child having this anxiety attack on the floor of their kitchen was because they weren't sure if they were a boy or a girl. The six-year-old had an anxious episode because she was suddenly conflicted about her identity. Six years old. In a world full of mental health conversations at the moment, think of Naomi Osaka, think of Simone Biles, think of Ben Stokes, recently mental health conversations within the sports field. Well, this is where this little girl's story of anxiety and mental health begins. Six years old. Six years old. Now, I know a lot of things are at play as I put that situation in front of us. There'll be a bunch of opinions even in the room about that. But I want to ask just for a moment, who has formed that problem for this little girl? Who's created the environment for her to have this anxious moment? Who is informing her about this problem to be considered at such an age anyway? What has become the playground chat that this means this is her problem? What has become the messaging of society that is the, sw- the stream in which she is swimming in every day? Now, my thoughts are on the macro level of this. The, me- the messaging of our culture, which at the moment is incredibly chaotic due to the breaking down of so many agreed universal truths, I think has led to this little girl sitting at home bearing the fruit of that chaos in a panic attack, an anxiety attack. Now, the parent in me, the parent in me wants to do what my parents did. As I look at my own boy, as I raise him, he's, th- he's turning three next month, and I ask the question as a parent, will, will that be me having to parent that soon? Will in a couple of years I have to do the same thing for my little boy? Will he be on the floor in our, bar- in our kitchen having an anxiety attack before school? Will that be his story? Can I stop him from having that same experience? Can I somehow manage to put a dam up that that won't be his experience? Like my parents did, can I, can I change the channel for him? Can I show a different show? Can I avoid the show that he is seeing? Can I somehow stop him from seeing all of this? And the answer is no. No. We cannot stop this. Culture does not work that way. We cannot just turn off culture. Culture is the water that we are swimming in. It's the zeitgeist of this age. It is around us every single day. Now, my parents had the ability to control so much of the cultural inputs in my life. They set it up like a dam to stop the flow. But I'm just not sure if it's possible to build a dam big enough at the moment for the things we are facing. On and on goes the messaging. Our culture says you have to be true to yourself. Our culture says you should be free to live however you want as long as you don't hurt anyone. Our culture says you must do whatever makes you the happiest. Don't sacrifice that for anyone. Our culture says the only way to solve our problems is through objective science and facts. Our culture says everyone has the right to decide what is right and wrong for themselves. And so whether it's the billboards and marketers or the Instagram followers that you uh, posters that you follow who are posting their own truths or even our workplace conversations, the environments like our dinner tables with extended families at Christmases, discussing conspiracy theories, whatever it is that you find yourself in the middle of, whether it's a playground at a school for a six-year-old child, we cannot escape the 24-7 nature of these cultural slogans and their chaotic 
onslaught in our lives. The culture that we are in is a chaotic turmoil. As Tim Keller has put it in his recent wonderful book, he says these are the markers of our current cultural uh, crisis. All values are relative. All relationships are transactional. All identities are fragile. All supposed sources of fulfillment are disappointing. And so, ironically, we are still not free. It's worth maybe taking a photo of that one and thinking about that a little bit more. Uh, And if you're listening on the podcast, you can go to our website and you can see the slides on our website there anytime. The pressure of living in this cultural picture, maybe a way to say it is abiding in this cultural picture, is then bearing fruit in certain outcomes in our lives and society. And this... This is where a life of faith and a life lived on the way of Jesus suddenly matters. And it suddenly kicks into real life. Because faith isn't about escaping that. It's not about being removed from that. Faith is about being found amongst it, living in an entirely different way. Amen? It's about pointing to a different reality. It's about living towards other truths. It's about bearing something different amongst the cultural chaos. It always has been. That is why the early followers of Jesus were spoken about as being on the way of Jesus. It was a life lived in an entirely different way. But to do this well, we must be intentional about who has our attention. You know, dominant culture actually has a way of forming us by osmosis, subconsciously, just because we're in it. Dominant culture also has the mob, and the mob can be hard to stand against. We have to be aware of what we are in, because it's true. What we abide in, we become like. If we abide in our culture, because culture cannot be tamed and mastered, we too, we too will find ourselves, like that six-year-old girl, bearing the fruit of anxiety, confusion, and fear, wondering where we can put any anchors of security in this life. But we aren't called to abide in our culture. We've been invited to abide in God. We've been invited to know him in a loving union, to experience his love and his faithful care for each of us in the room today, to have that reality become like the garden that we are planted in and grown in. That is the context of the Christian faith. That is what we are grounded in. Now, my parents, my parents did all that they could in those early years to raise me the only way that they knew how. But I think we have to not put up more barriers and walls and boundaries and think that they're going to solve the problem. I think we need to embrace something from the scriptural ideas of living fruitfully, of discovering what this means truly in the Christian faith context for us to be able to navigate this moment of culture. My parents were incredibly intentional about a rule of life with me. I think to live fruitfully, we too will need some rules to this life. 
My parents were incredibly intentional about the focus of my attention. I think that in this series too, we're asking the same questions. Where is your attention? And my parents were very intentional about the outcomes. What kind of life was I living? And I too want to ask us the same thing today. Are we aware of the kinds of lives we're living? Are we living fruitfully? Who you are with, you will become like. Who you are with, you become like. What you are with, you become like. Simply put, be with, be like. Introduction over. (laughs) Um, This is our new series. I hope it sort of pricked your attention a little bit there. But it's a series exploring this idea of fruitfulness. And I hope you can hear that it's going to be applicable and it's going to be for real life. It's not just going to be some sort of theological mumbo jumbo. It's, It's for real life. It's for raising our kids, it's for our friendships, it's for our conversations at work, it's for the real things. So we want to talk about fruitfulness. So part one today, I just want to introduce the series a little bit by explaining a little bit more about this metaphor that the series sits in, this metaphor of fruitfulness. So Jesus repeatedly used this metaphor. Um, Our readings today actually had it in there quite a few times, and in John 15, it's sitting right there at the heart of it. You know, John 15, live in me, make your home in me just as I do in you, in the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine. You can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. And later on, near the bottom of the reading there, um, I chose you and put you in the world to bear fruit, fruit that won't spoil. It's this metaphor, this idea that Jesus is working with. It's not an uncommon idea. He's used it in many places. Throughout the Gospels, he uses it repeatedly in this way. This is the version from Matthew 12, but the same scriptures in a few places in the Gospels. A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. It's just a matter of fact, truth, and life. Um, the Psalms open in Psalm, the first Psalm just opens so beautifully that if we place our life in God, if we trust in God fully in word and, 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 um, and, and his law, then actually we, in verse 3, are are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all that they do. This is how the book of Psalms opens. This is its opening vision. Become a fruitful tree. Um, Then after the book of Psalms, you have the wisdom book of Proverbs, and Proverbs is essentially the same thing over and over again. People who do this, get this. People who do this, get this. People who do that, get that. It's a book of this fruitfulness metaphor in play. Wisdom is often associated to this idea of fruitfulness. St. Paul used it quite often as well. In our reading from today, Galatians 5, I know it was in the message, so it was maybe a little bit harder to pick up, but it said here, he brings gifts into our lives much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. This metaphor is all throughout our Bibles. It's all throughout the scriptures. But what does it actually mean? What does it mean to be a fruitful person? Why should this be a vision that matters in our lives? Why could this be a metaphor that's important? Why does this container um, have some things to say? Well, firstly, as I start unpacking it, we just need to do a little bit of deconstruction work and we need to just get ourselves seeing this in a more original context. So we have to undo a few things that we just assume. We have a life of convenience. Our lives are convenient lives. We live in Uber Eats, drive throughs Google Maps, shopping malls, light switches. Man, I sound like a rapper there. That sounded really good. I should carry on going. Um, it, it's, it's not a life of the agricultural rhythms of the early believers in the Scriptures. They were deeply connected to life's essentials day to day, every day. Farming practices, hunting and gathering, 
as a community. It was a big part of how life worked. And this audience of the scriptures, it was fishermen, homemakers, shepherds, water gatherers, grain harvesters, bread bakers. These are the kinds of people that the scriptures are talking about in the characters that we find in there. They cared deeply about how the weather worked. They cared about when rain came and when rain did not come, what season would produce what things for them to eat. They knew how important it was that life was sustained in their crops because without those crops, their lives, their lives weren't sustained. So much of the Bible speaks about fruitfulness and harvest because this is just the world that they are in. It's how the world worked. This first century audience listening to these teachings of Jesus or the words from St. Paul, they were far closer connected to what they ate and how they grew it than a lot of us are. Um, the day was spent at the, at the coalface of life's essentials. They were keeping the fire going to cook with. They were, they were daily connecting, uh, collecting their water. They were fishing for their families and for their community. They were tending to flocks of sheep. They were growing plants for food to eat. They were harvesting their fields. There wasn't much time off from this activity, actually. It actually involved a lot of work. And if it was neglected for too long, if it was forgotten about for too long, then they went hungry as a result. Even the cities of the New Testament, even when we read about cities, they're not the cities we have today. The, the cities were still in their infant stages of marketplaces, trade routes were only just opening up around the world. It didn't look like it looks like today to kind of have all year round tomatoes and, and fruit and veg available really quickly and easily all year round in our supermarkets or pop into a drive through That's not what the cities felt like. They were actually still working with a lot of local farmers and they were eating what was local a lot of the time. And so Jesus and the other biblical authors, they take this close agricultural connection that these people have and they use it as a metaphor, a, a, an image, an imagination picture to get them to see some truths. That's what a metaphor does. It gets our imagination going, that we could see something. A quick example, you know, David in the Psalms, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Well, everyone would have known a shepherd. They would have known what a shepherd does. They would have known what a shepherd doesn't do. They would have known what good shepherds are. They would have known what bad shepherds were. They would have immediately connected all the dots. Who knows a shepherd? A couple of hands, right? Like we're losing out on some of the metaphors in our scriptures. And so with this one, it's the same. In this metaphor of fruitfulness, I know what the temptation is. Most of us go, that's a bit childish, isn't it? I know that because I've been doing it the same as I've been preparing this sermon series for about four weeks now. There's a, there's a thing in me that's like, I really want to you know, jazz up the metaphor a little bit, Jesus. But actually, this metaphor is rich. The problem is we have got this changing dynamic around us that means we don't see the metaphor for what it is. Most of us are not deeply connected to our food. We're not deeply connected to the ways in which it's getting to our tables. And as such, we aren't even really seeing all the dots of this metaphor playing out. When was the last time you ate an apple and in your mid-chew you were like, I'm thankful for the years of harvesting that have gone into the, this apple. Years of nutritionist uh, soil development and watching the weather every night. And you know, like none of us do that. We just eat the apple. But yet the people of, the, of this audience, they knew deeply what it took to have that in their hands. So 
Maybe we could blame the fact that we've become a convenient culture. Maybe we could blame the fact that we're in this geography. We're not exactly in um, rural Aotearoa, are we? It's not really the kind of scenario that we're in. We're in this concrete jungle of a city. And so all of this to say, we need to read powerful metaphors like this in the scriptures and actually make sure we don't miss the powerful part. We need to make sure that we actually tune our ears to hear what's going on here and not just move on. So much of the scriptures is using metaphor. We have to get inside the metaphor to look around. And so today, let me just let the, this um, metaphor breathe a little bit. Here's just some things that this metaphor is trying to get us to see. Think of the metaphor, and just as you do, just imagine what it is to have uh, some sort of tree planted in a ground, and in that uh, sorry, in that tree there is fruit growing. So whatever comes to mind for you, it might be grapes on a vine, or it might be a tree with some lemons on it, or it might be a little pot plant that's on your back veranda, or it might be like a big orchard. Whatever's in your mind, this, these truths will be true, I'm sure. Firstly, this picture of fruitfulness is a picture about a system of life source. The vine and the branches and the fruit are all connected to each other, they are sustained and dependent on that very connection. Truth number two, this, this picture is about a connection which creates a production. All of the system being at rights and as it should be makes something good. This picture is about something that is produced for something other than the tree itself. Have you ever thought about the fact that the tree doesn't actually need what it's making makes it for something else, makes it for someone else. And all of this, all of this takes time and it takes this patient waiting. You know, fruit is not just made, it grows. It takes time. And to grow well, it takes care, it takes watering, it takes nutrients, but it also takes pruning. It takes the removal of what is not going to be helpful for that growth. And lastly, the planting is in hope of bearing something in the future. We plant something that it may bear fruit and we may eat of it, yeah? We plant that it may do something in the future. It has this future orientation. And so if that's the metaphor of some things from this metaphor of uh, fruitfulness, then let me just draw some dots across to the Christian life for you for a second. The Christian life has a life source, a system. It's not done in a disconnected and isolated way it's done with God it's done abiding in God and what he's done the Christian life has a productive nature to it which is true to the original and good way the Christian life is life lived beyond oneself in service to a world who desperately needs it to do so and this growth work of the Christian life it's slow and it takes constant abiding. Not our striving, but our abiding. And the, fruit, the work of fruitfulness, it actually requires being pruned. It requires God correcting and God caringly, caringly providing for us what we need. And lastly, this work of fruitfulness is what it is to abide in the future hope of being a Christian. We taste the things of the future now. We taste the things of the kingdom now. It has a future orientation.
temptation. So that's the metaphor in a little bit more of a richer way. And all of this is a combination of a couple of things, experiencing God and then exhibiting that very presence. It's all about the Trinity. It's about the Father's love. It's about Christ modeling a way for us. It's about the Spirit empowering us. And so what I want to do is just pass you a working title that I've been working for a few weeks now. When I say fruitfulness, this is what's coming to mind for me. Fruitfulness is experiencing and exhibiting the Father's love and Christ-like way by the Holy Spirit. Fruitfulness is experiencing and exhibiting the Father's love and Christ-like way by the Holy Spirit. Experience, exhibit, be with, be like. What goes in, goes out. William Blake said, you become like what you behold. True. And the using of this word like is, is not just some mere inv- um, imitation, like some mere copy. It's not that. It's actually we become like the very substance and the same very nature. Um, I love this idea from Jay Lancaster. He says, the Christian is called not merely to resemble Christ, but to share his very life. One might be bold enough to suggest that Christness would be nearer the mark, since the believer is more than a copy of Christ. They are part and parcel of his very being, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, as Paul daringly puts it in Ephesians 5, verse 30. Our likeness to Christ is therefore not something applied from without, like a cosmetic transformation produced by the formula of some religious makeup department, but a genuine likeness produced by an intimate relationship with him. Christ's own analogy of the vine and the branches upholds this. In John 15, we've just read that. And the branches are not merely vine-like, they are part of the vine. Likewise, the fruit does not merely resemble grapes, but possesses their inherent structure and taste. Oh, I love that quote. Um, what about Gordon Fee? For those of you who know your theology a little bit, Gordon Fee is one of the world's leading um, voices on the, on the topic of the Holy Spirit. He says this, We have been invaded by the living God himself in the person of his Spirit, whose goal is to infect us thoroughly with God's own likeness. Paul's phrase for this infection is the fruit of the Spirit. The coming of the Spirit with the renewing of our minds gives us a heavenly appetite for this fruit. The growing of this fruit is the long way on the way of Christian conversion, the long obedience in the same direction. And it is altogether the work of the Spirit in our lives. You may have noticed that uh, Gordon Fee there is talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Let's dive into that for a second because that was our second reading. John 15 was our first one. Galatians 5 was our second one. Uh, if, if you don't know your Bible very well and you're wondering, okay, John, Galatians, what's the difference? Well, Galatians is a letter from Paul to a community and, and, and what he's doing is he's addressing a problem that they are facing. They think they still need to keep the Jewish law in a bunch of areas of their faith. And he is saying, no, the work of God now has changed that. It's not like that anymore. In particular, he deals with the fact that they don't have to be circumcised anymore. That's just sitting in there as a problem that had to be solved. And then he starts going on about what it is that they need to do. Do not conform to all of the details of the law and do not give in to the freedom of anything goes. Live this new way of God, this Christ-like way by his Holy Spirit. It's a vision of the right life. Not one that's controlled by sin, not one that's controlled by religious rules. It's this nice new middle way. And to reuse the metaphor that we've been using all morning, he sums it up and says, live the fruit of the Spirit. 
the metaphor comes back on in. By the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Interestingly, this list from Paul sounds very similar to another passage from Paul, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love, it, it sounds very, very similar. Interestingly, this list is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus. The same themes that Jesus tackles in the Sermon on the Mount are sitting here in this list. It's a list of the Father's love enacted into human history. It's a list of how things will be when things are made new by God himself, the one who's redeeming all of creation. It's a list that makes a portrait of what the Christian life should look like in real time now for us. It's a brave list. It's a courageous list. And some of the things on this list are countercultural to the behaviors that we're being formed in in our culture. And some things on this list are defined in completely different ways by the scriptures as our culture would say that those words are defined as. This is an interesting list and we need to now drop the container of the metaphor for a bit and talk about how it works in real life. What does the fruit of the Spirit actually look like for us this afternoon when you walk out those doors to the next thing you have to go to? What does the fruit of the Spirit look like when you're at work tomorrow, university tomorrow, whatever you find yourself doing? Well, theologians identify the fruit of the Spirit as graced character traits and virtues. Graced character traits and virtues. They actually become a behavior of goodness into the world. God grows in us this new way of being that we may then be signposts for his kingdom of how his way is done in the world. Great Christian saints throughout history are great Christian saints because they have displayed things on that list, yeah? If they don't show that list, they don't usually make the cut. In newspaper English, says Samuel Chadwick, this passage would read something like this. The fruit of the Spirit is an affectionate, lovable disposition, a radiant spirit and a cheerful temper, a tranquil mind and a quiet manner, a forbearing patience in provoking circumstances and with trying people a sympathetic insight and tactful helpfulness, generous judgment and a big soul charity, loyalty and reliableness under all circumstances, humility that forgets self and the joy of others, and in all things self-mastered and self-controlled, which is the final mark of perfecting. Well, from one of the commentaries I was reading this week, actually, I loved this. All these other virtues which are mentioned are but facets of love. When the Spirit of God comes into one's life, he invariably sheds abroad his love in the heart. In Notes from My Bible by D.L. Moody, this characterization of love is found in the terms of these other virtues as follows. Joy is love exalting. Peace is love reposing. Long-suffering is love untiring. Meekness is love under discipline. Goodness is love in action. Faith is love on the battlefield. Gentleness is love enduring. Temperance is love in training. There's a little bit of older language there. You might be sort of picking that and realizing long-suffering is patience and um, temperance is self-control, for example. But it's just this beautiful image to say, well, actually all of this is love. Love lived out in different facets and characteristics. 
And as you can see, the metaphor is well and truly gone now. We're not really talking about fruitfulness in some sort of ambiguous idea. We're talking about real life. I don't know about you, but I read that list and the list from the commentary just, bef- uh, just from before from Samuel Chadwick. And I think, oh my goodness, like imagine a world where that's the kind of way people talked about each other in the comment sections on, on, on Facebook posts. Like that's where it plays out. Imagine if that's how people did conflict. That's where it plays out. Imagine where people waited for things. That's where it plays out, like real life. And as you can see, the metaphor is well and truly gone. And what we're talking about here is the fruit of the Spirit is living Christian love. It's the living of Christian love. And the world needs more people whose lives are marked by these virtues. The church needs more people who look like this. We need to become people who look like this. That six-year-old girl needs people who will look like this. Now, our culture is not marked by this list. Some of them, yes, but not all of them together as a portrait of love. The church has not been very good at displaying itself at times of this list together as a display of love. I know I have not been very good at displaying myself at times with this list as my display of love. And I'm kindly and very graciously assuming that you may be the same, that you've faced your challenges too in how we live this out in real life. But I think this today, as we finish, we need to change the story. We need to change the story. And we need to define success as fruitfulness. We need to put way more focus on this as being important. What I mean by that is in a faith that's often categorized as, do you go to church or don't you, as an attendance to something, what if we ask the question of like, what's that life actually bearing into the world? Or if it was, well, do you believe this or don't you believe that? Like, this is the hot argument right now. What's your take? What if it was, what's the display of fruitfulness of this person in amongst that? We need to recover this fundamental metaphor of life lived in the Orthodox Christian faith. If you think this world's chaotic and pressure, You just only have to go back to the very start of the church to see we ain't seen nothing yet. And this is how they sought their lives lived. By this list, displaying this fruit into that world. Remember where John ended? Sorry, the text in John? Jesus said this, but remember the root command, love one another. See, there it is again, the root command, where the system goes into the ground, where it begins to get its nutrients and absorb up into the life of the being of that plant. Love one another is the start of all of this. And so if you're sitting here today and faith is boring, or you are cynical, or you're stuck in your head, I wonder if for the next couple of months as we explore fruitfulness, you might find yourself on a bit of a journey of growth, a wonderful journey of growth, as you start to consider this new marker of measuring how you are doing at this very thing. When we're talking about fruitfulness, we're talking about real life lived in a real place, in a real time, and amongst a real culture. 
We're talking about being connected intentionally to God. We're talking about that connection bearing God's nature in our lives to our real world. And it can only be done by the work of the Spirit amongst us. And so to finish, I want to just finish with one closing pastoral thought that I think was really beautiful and I hope will be encouraging to you. I want to highlight one core truth from the metaphor today, and that is that fruit is grown, not made. Fruit is growing. It takes time. And so abiding with God, slowing down and stopping takes time. It takes commitment. It takes intentionality. And it may not bear things very fast. And it may not be very convenient. But I want to close with a closing thought from Samuel Chadwick again. I quoted him earlier, but I loved this and I just could not read this out today. Samuel Chadwick says this, it's so poetic almost. Works belong to the workshop. Fruit belongs to the garden. One comes from the ingenuity of the factory. The other is the silent growth of abounding life. The factory operates with dead stuff. The garden cultivates living forces to their appointed end. Works are always in the realm of dead things. Every building is built out of dead material. The tree must die before it can be of use to the builder. There is no life in stones and brick and steel joists and iron girders. They are all dead and in the process of disintegration. Nothing material lasts. Mankind's best works fail and fade. They crumble and pass away. Fruit does not come of a person's labor. It requires their diligence, but it is neither their invention nor their product. When man has done all he can, then God begins and life proceeds. Fruit is God's work. The phrase fruit of the Spirit assigns the graces of the Christian character to their proper source. They are not of man's producing. Amen? I loved that line there, back there. Works belong to the workshop. Fruit belongs to the garden. May we all go with God. May we go graciously. And may we grow. May we grow into what needs to be produced. This is hopeful work. It's good work. And so to do this, we want to um, pass out something to you, a little helpful thing, hopefully. Um, across our three gatherings today uh, at Newland and also at Greyland, uh, everyone's getting one of these. Um, we want to pass these out. These are just a simple little series companion that we wanted to make. Um, and when Patrick sat down to pull this one together, this idea of having to abide to bear meant that it wasn't going to be like our last series companion, which was loaded with a bunch of pages and a bunch of more ideas to think about, more that it just needed to become a practice that we gave a go. And so what we're giving you today is a simple little prayer guide, a little liturgy. And it's just really simple. It's just grounded in this list of the fruit of the Spirit. And that's what our series is going to be covering for the next eight weeks. We're going to be looking at each characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit in order. And so in that little uh, prayer guide that we're giving you, what, we, what I want to invite you to do is slip it somewhere that you will use every day. Slip it somewhere which you will use several times a week. And open it up, follow the instructions. We gave you a little, little bit of a primer in there as to what to do. And have a go at for yourself, abiding with God, that you may bear fruit in prayer and in thought and in meditation of the scriptures. And so what we want you to do 
is, this is the invitation. Give this a try, at least this week. Please just try it this week. Give it a go. Three times, five times, seven times. And you can read ahead and start on next week's theme. So there's, two, there's a scripture for um, the be with side of being with God, and then there's a scripture for the become like side. Read the two scriptures on love. Get ready for next Sunday. Read those readings all week long. Sit with them all week long. Has everyone got one? Is anyone missing out? We're okay. Wonderful. But this is just a little physical thing that we hope might accompany our journey as a community. This series is going to track through all of the eight characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Next week is love. We're going to open it up. And every talk, what we're going to do is we're going to ask the same questions. Firstly, how does God exhibit this to us? So if God is a God of love, how does that work? How do we experience God's love? And then how do we experience it? That we may exhibit it. And we're going to ask that same pattern each time with each of the fruit of the Spirit. Patience. Okay, well, how has God been patient? How then do we experience his patience? How then do we, how then do we exhibit it? So we're going to be asking this sort of little repeating um, framework of each of the fruit of the Spirit. And what we'd love you to do is just slowly journey along, growing with us by the practice of this simple little prayer companion. Um, slip it somewhere important and uh, please don't lose it and give it a try. It'll be good for your soul. Let's stand. It too. Works belong to the workshop, but fruit belongs to the garden. Lord, we thank you that your good news to us is that it's not about works. We're not saved by works. We cannot earn our way into this. We cannot achieve our way into this. We cannot structure our way into this. We can only do it by grace, mercy, and love. And so today we respond to that by realizing that you have created for us a garden, a place to be planted that there is a kingdom, the kingdom of God, and you call us to put our roots deep into that kingdom. And you call us to be people who see of another way within this world. And Lord, here we are. We're about to go live our lives. We're about to tackle Monday. And in tackling Monday, we're going to be in our world, our city and our urban culture and our current cultural moment. And with that comes all kinds of things that are going to try and swing for our attention. And God, we just ask that you would create in us a heart that would be quick to see what are the things of distractions, what are the things that are of, um, of, of earthly making, not the things of heavenly agendas. God, would you create in us the ability to see the fruit of your Spirit in our day tomorrow, that we may experience the things of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and we may then experience the fruit of the Spirit in the people around us, giving that away to them. Lord, as we start this journey, as we embark on it, Lord, we pray for grace and mercy for growth. Lord, growing is hard. Growing is uncomfortable. And sometimes it takes pruning. Sometimes it takes things being cut off. Sometimes it takes things being removed. And that sucks. It's sore. But God, as, we, as a community, we're up for this. We're up for what you're going to do in our midst to make us more like you. Holy, set apart, people of your way. That we would not be swayed left or right, but that we'd be able to walk faithfully in the things that you've called us to. So in the love of the Father and in the way of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, we pray these things together. Amen.